they commended themselves to God and they rose above their circumstances by virtue of a personal, a compelling, and a captivating attachment to Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Breakthrough of Grace podcast, a place where we share the stories of ordinary lives transformed by God's extraordinary graces. We invite you to join us as our speakers talk about their journey towards living lives of rich Christian authenticity to encourage and inspire each one of us. We are thankful you're here and taking this time to spend with us. Welcome, friends. My name is Simon Kine, and I had the opportunity to give this talk on the topic of Breakthrough of Grace. And as I was praying for the talk, I felt encouraged to affirm what we believe, and borrowing from Bishop Barron, Christianity is, at its essence, an encounter with Jesus Christ. My hope was and is that this talk encourages you in a time where we can find ourselves very discouraged. Drawing on scripture, the teachings of the church, and the example of the saints, my hope and prayer is that you are both encouraged and inspired to see the Christian life not as a dry exercise of spiritual disciplines, but as a daily encounter with Christ, which by his grace draws our story, our gifts, our hopes, our aspirations into the divine romance. We'll talk in this session about how this is opposed, but also why there is such reason for hope for each one of us in a breakthrough of grace. This talk was recorded during a monthly prayer meeting held at a parish in Southern California. My hope is this blesses you in hearing it as much as it did me in giving it. In the fourth century, there lived a young yet inspired scholar who, living in Rome and then later in Milan, was one of the most skilled rhetoricians of his day. That is, skilled in the art of persuasion, the classical art of persuasion. And that scholar at various times and in various cities both taught and formed students in this rhetorical tradition but also used his talents to serve the political leadership. In fact, he was part of the emperor's own propaganda machine. His elevated skills introduced him to increasingly more elevated circles of both scholars, academia, as well as the political elites in the various places in which he lived. And by God's grace, he entered the sphere of influence of the Bishop of Milan, very much a peer to this scholar in those same rhetorical gifts. And this providential meeting occurred at a time when Rome, the empire, the unifying force of the ancient world, was starting to collapse under its weight of civilizational, cultural, and moral decline. Our scholar had been raised, if you will, to prop up the facade of the Roman Empire. The bishop, by contrast, was using his gifts to draw people to the everlasting truths of the gospel. And our scholar, measure by measure, found his heart drawn to God. And our scholar, very much a middle-aged man now, under the influence and under the tutelage, under the catechesis of this bishop, 
became himself a Christian, was baptized, he became a priest, and his intellect would go to serve the church extremely well. And he became one of the most prolific theologians of his day. And he would die in his home city, even as barbarian invaders lay siege to his own city. And he continues to this day to be recognized as a shining light whose writings illuminate believers to this day. Let's fast forward 100 years. In the 6th century, in the mountainous region just outside of Rome called Subiaco, yet another young and promising scholar left his life in the world behind. His biographer would later record it was his deep disgust with what now was a truly collapsed and declined Roman civilization and the moral decay which ensued, which caused him to leave his life of privilege. He lived a life of privilege. He left it and disappeared into the wilderness. He pursued a new life inspired by the Desert Fathers to leave the world and adopt a life utterly devoted to emptying the self so as to be filled by God. He took the habit of a humble monk, entered a cave, and for three years, three years, this inspired soul became increasingly still, and we can only assume from what occurred later, increasingly known by and loved by God. This time of entering the cave, three years of being totally withdrawn from the world, it speaks to his capacities for self-denial, his own psychological fortitude, just think about that, and yet his spiritual resilience. He lived in adjacent another kind and humble monk who, who took him under his wing, and this scholar turned recluse began to mature, and he emerged from that time and began to teach and live with and shape other communities of men and later women who would adopt his rule and lay down the pattern of monasticism in the West. Bishop Robert Barron would later describe this hero as one of the key individuals whose life of sanctity at a time of deep geopolitical disorder would spark a movement to preserve and protect the Christian faith as well as the deposit of her teachings in spite of much which would be lost in the dark ages which were, which were on the threshold which were about to follow. Two more stories. Fast forward, now to the 14th century. The backdrop is this, Western Europe, the Black Plague is washing across the continent. People by the thousands are dying. Wars are breaking out between various political factions and rival kings. In fact, the civilizational decline was such that popular culture with a bit of morbid humor reflected, this is likely the time that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are truly afoot. And into this challenging period, the Pope himself, in name the Bishop of Rome, was living in Avignon in southern France under the protection of the French king. Onto this stage in history, this dark and discouraging time, stepped a young laywoman from Siena, who had a particular devotion to the teachings of St. Dominic, and she had also an inspired love of God. Despite her relative youth, her life was described and, and, and characterized by these extraordinary infused moments of prayer, and it definitely united her heart to God. In fact, 
God so used her as an instrument, we can only imagine she would pray to her Heavenly Father in secret, as the scripture calls us to. But she was thrust on the stage of history because she would write these letters of appeal, almost scolding the Pope that he needed to get back to Rome for the unity of the church and for the strength of the faithful. And in fact, she herself traveled to Avignon to the papal court and made her appeal in person. And so compelling was her personal holiness and her love for the church and for what needed to be right or righted. Within a year of that visit, the Pope himself returned to Rome. Her influence would spread. She would die at the young age of 33, the age of Jesus' crucifixion. And the Pope, back in Rome, would himself say her funeral, a funeral mass, and commend her soul to God. One last example. Let's fast forward to the 19th century. In the northern regions of France, a young woman would passionately pursue her vocation to the consecrated life. And because she was only 14, 13, 14 years of age, the religious authorities and her own family were a bit reticent to let her enter the monastery. She took her appeal all the way to Rome. In fact, she cast herself down in front of Leo XIII, Pope at the time, and appealed, begged, asked him as a father, would you let me enter the monastery? And by God's grace and, 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 and people understanding her purity of intention, they did in fact allow her to enter Carmel. And she would, in the years that followed, set down in her journal a spiritual masterpiece, which would translate little, small, ordinary, mundane tasks of Christian charity into acts of great virtue, of great um, preciousness in the eyes of God. She died commending her sufferings to Jesus, her heavenly spouse, and would leave behind a practice of Christian devotion, which to this day continues to inspire millions. I gathered these four stories. Augustine of Hippo, you probably recognized him. Benedict of Nursia, the founder of Western monasticism. Catherine of Siena, of course. And lastly, St. Therese the Little Flower, St. Therese de Dieu. They're linked, their stories, their heart, their beautiful, compelling witnesses, linked by many common attributes. But this morning, I want to just pull out one of those amazing, uh, compelling elements of their lives. They came to prominence at a time in history when the church was most in need of great heroes. And notice these individuals, like Jesus himself born in Bethlehem, they weren't born into great privilege or, 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 or they didn't use the political theater of the time to advance themselves. They were humble. They, they didn't have great political power or kingly office. They commended themselves to God, and they rose above their circumstances by virtue of a personal, a compelling, and a captivating attachment to Jesus Christ. Each of these individuals lived by measure and measure at times that were hostile to the teachings of the church. And yet, my friends, these four friends of ours in heaven provide witness and assurance of what's possible what is available, what's achievable by the action of God and a breakthrough of grace. Let's fast forward to our own time. Just, it's easy to place ourselves in a similar sense of what must have faced Benedict, what must have faced Catherine. J.R.R. Tolkien, a devout Catholic, one of my my favorite authors, he describes the world as ever growing more chill to the things of God, and this was, what, 50 years ago? 
And I want to claim the example of these saints and offer some inspiration from their example this morning by reproposing what lies at the heart of our faith. And I borrow from Bishop Barron. He talks about Christianity not as a philosophy primarily, or a set of teachings primarily, or a collection of religious beliefs and spirituality. It is at its core, Christianity at its essence, is an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we find in him all that we hope and all that we aspire for. And Pope Francis shared as much, again, anytime we have a new Pope, I always listen to some of the earliest words of that Pope because usually those words provide a cadence or a sense of insight of what that pontificate's about. John Paul II, October 1978, be not afraid. And what was that as a clarion call for his pontificate? Pope Francis, this is from his uh, apostolic exhortation, Joy of the Gospel. Pope Francis writes, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, or at least an openness to letting him encounter them. I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. Interesting how it dovetails with what Job felt and experienced in prayer this, uh, as he prepared for this morning. The Lord does not disappoint those who take this risk. Whenever we take a step towards Jesus, we come to realize that he is already there, waiting for us with open arms. Let me describe what an experience was for me in terms of this encounter, this daily experience of an encounter with this Jesus. I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again. Some years ago, I was traveling with a business associate in Dallas, Texas, and we'll call his name Roger. And Roger was a Catholic, and if you followed the pattern of his life, he appeared to be every bit the practicing and dedicated Catholic you would expect, go to Mass on Sundays, was attached to his parish. In fact, he and I were talking about our experiences growing up as Catholics, different parishes and priests and people we knew. He lived in the Northeast. I lived in various parts of North America. But it was just one of those kind of, wow, you kind of break down the walls of the professional relationship and get a bit of an insight into the person that you're traveling with. But as I pressed on kind of some things and being a guy who, who, who has had some extraordinary experiences of grace in my own life, I just got this sense like Roger, for all the appearances of being a practicing Catholic, lived out of this thousand yard stare of his Christian belief. That somehow God had become remote long ago. And who knows what the contributors were of that. But there was this movement in my heart. I had this sense of compassion for him. Like, he needs to be reoriented. What's the point of all this? And I just, out of this eruption of the Holy Spirit, just threw out the question in the rental car as we're driving to our business meeting. I said, Roger, what is grace? And there's this dead pause. You know, you can hear the hard drive just going, he's like, we're going back to like fifth grade and Sister Longinus, and what did you teach me, right? And I said, hey man, it's not a trick question. I'm not trying to pop quiz you here, but Grace, and, and I share the words that I, I recall sharing with him, and trust me, I don't know where these came from. They just emerged out of me. I said, Roger, Grace is the unmerited, lavish gift of God. 
And I believe that by grace, God can enter into our lives and all those places where we're desperate, where we're broken, where we're covering up our pain through myriad coping mechanisms. We can, we can overcome broken behaviors and addictions. Grace is the living power of God. When it enters our hearts, permanent life change can occur. The deaf hear, the lame walk. An alcoholic can leave the bottle behind, not out of more self-discipline, but because the very reason at the core of which they reach for the bottle in the first place falls away by the grace of God. God, grace brings about a change in identity, and we go from sinners to adopted sons and daughters. And to quote St. Paul, not just sinners, but heirs to God's kingdom. Think of that. And I'm kind of hearing myself say this, and I'm sort of leaning back, okay, that was unexpected. <laughs> and I'm waiting and I'm waiting, and there was just this calm and this peace and this beautiful moment that, 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 that kind of covered both Roger and I. And I just felt like in that moment, for me as well as for him, that daily encounter with Jesus that Pope Francis invites us to occur for him. And who knows how long it had been since that had truly occurred for him, but something shifted in his heart that. I share this story because it provides insight to what the weary, labored, disheartened Christian traveler on this earth and in this pilgrimage of life can become, if not reminded and affirmed, reminded and affirmed of the truths of our faith. Just notice his spiritual barrenness. Again, no judgment here. I don't know the details of Roger's story, but he's probably a gentleman who puts his trousers on one leg at a time, and whether through sin or just spiritual neglect or just being taken up by the grind of life, that thousand-yard stare thing had just capitulated to a spiritual posture where he was, if you will, more dead than alive. Yes, going through the motions, but was there this personal encounter with Christ? I would suggest not. And as I stand and think about my friends and peers, you know, those are Christian upbringings, and then I compare that to those who've fallen away, and then I compare that to the larger statistic of people who have left the faith, who have either apostated themselves, they've truly denied Christ and walked away, where they just decided it's an option. You know, I get to go to Mass at Christmas and Easter, and that's good, and he's good, I'm good, you know, on the outside looking in. It's interesting, right? St. Augustine, I chose him for this reason. One of the things he looked at when he sort of surveyed the civilization, the times, the people in which he, he was surrounded by, he talked about this idea of being in curvatus in se. It's Latin for being collapsed and caved in on yourself. We live in a time where this posture is overtaking people time and time and time again. It's no irony that physical therapists right now are treating people for this hunched over posture with people diving into their smartphones. Literally, people's postures are changing physically because the human form was not designed to hold some small, you know, four by six inch device and tap with two thumbs. Spiritually speaking, the same thing applies. So I just want to ask the question, how do we kind of be aware of this, engage it, but then maybe do something to unfurl, to stretch ourselves out, to expand and make space where God wants to bring his grace. And again, more from St. Augustine, I want to go to his conversion story. His conversion story is incredible. He's the first autobiographer who really, with, with true introspection, described a journey of a soul into God. And it was a journey of years. It wasn't one of these flash moment, you know, 
uh, lightning from the sky, Damascus Road, St. Paul type things. He fought it and tested it and intellectually kind of sifted through it. But grace gradually overwhelmed all those resistances. And it was the letter to the Romans, St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. Remember, St. Augustine was a Roman. So if you will, St. Paul was writing to his guys. And he pulled out chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. I'm just going to take this little piece of gold out of what's an incredible passage from the scriptures. But this is St. Paul. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a tranche out of Romans 13. But just that one phrase, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, St. Paul, who had this personal encounter with Jesus Christ and therefore was forever changed for the benefit and the beauty of the church. Praise God for that. He's not describing some kind of tip or te technique, okay? St. Paul would never put out a tape series of the seven ways to do this and that. He, he, he chose to contend with the challenges of his time. Indeed, in writing this down by grace, the challenges that the church would face in every age, he believes there's something of grace, of this divine life, which when generously poured out by Jesus and generously received by the believer, it goes back and forth. The gospel has the power to reach down and convert those tired, those incubatus and say, those collapsed inward places. And I would suggest, I just place before you the example of their lives, this breakthrough of grace took hold and took root in Benedict, in Catherine, in Teresa the Little Flower, in St. Augustine, and so many more. You know, just to put this in a personal context, think about those from whom you received your faith. And God bless all the priests who at some time and in some place baptized each one here. Pray for the priests who baptized you. But then think about all those that God placed in your life, in your sphere, in your realm, who've just poured love, compassion, charity, the richness of an infectious Catholicism into your lives. God bless those spiritual allies. Because is it not also through them that you encounter this Jesus Christ? The gospel message truly presented, understood. Life becomes what the spiritual writers describe as this divine romance where the father, almost if you imagine the particle son story, the father rushes forth to lavish blessing and favor upon the son, upon the daughter. And each step in that, if you truly take this message to heart, your life isn't just a series of random circumstances and happenings and events and things happening to you. Your life is a vocational play where God is just working in and through you for his cosmic, sorry, his creative, and his redemptive and his sanctifying purposes. Just gonna pause there. How are we doing? It's amazing, right? It's just like, wait a minute. Yeah, okay, unfurl. Incubatus and say, let's unpack from this. All right.
again, I want to come back to this promise of this Jesus is to provide witness and assurance of what's possible, available, achievable via a breakthrough of grace. And not just kind of once a lifetime, once every 20 years, maybe once a decade, that'd be kind of nice. No, 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 this is daily. That's what the normative expectation and promise of the gospel is. But let's go deeper. I just want to maybe contrast, if that's truly the promise, what are we experiencing ourselves? What maybe is the the truly daily lived uh, experience? There are many reasons why maybe our experience is in that daily encounter, and there could be reasons that are drawn from John of the Cross, where there's long seasons of protracted withdrawal of God, and God deepens those roots of conversion. God deepens those roots of attachment. That's possible. Check. You could have moments of spiritual desolation or consolation. St. Ignatius talks about this, more of the daily or, or, or weekly rhythms of moving in and out of a posture where God is totally present. God maybe is a bit more withdrawn, and there's various reasons for that. It could be assault of the enemy. It could be God gently causing you to deepen and mature and become more resilient in your faith, kind of like a sword is honed and forged. Okay, check. Various spiritual laneways that, that, that emerge as you ask the question, why don't we experience these daily encounters of grace? But I want to put a couple of ideas in front of you, and again, many great commentators, many theologians, many people can, can better articulate this than me, but I think there are a couple of things that um, I just want to posit for your consideration, and hopefully you leave today with a sense of, wow, I get it. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors, one of the things that he assumes in his mythology, granted he's a Catholic and those Catholic ideas infused into his, his fiction, the enemy, the, the, the evil forces that show up in the Middle Earth trilogies, whether it's the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings, are actually manifestations in that time of Middle Earth's history of an ancient enemy that's been with the world from the beginning. Very similar to our own. In other words, I think we're living in a time like Middle Earth where the enemy, our ancient enemy, Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, and the serpent caused that, that same ancient enemy has been very crafty and sophisticated in our present age in manifesting two forms of error and of evil to thwart, to steal, to kill, to destroy this opportunity, this doorway, this, this invitation to a daily encounter with grace and an invitation with the Holy Spirit. The first of these is a heresy called Donatism. And again, my friend Roger is canning the hard drive, no pop quiz here. Donatism was a heresy that broke out around the time of, ironically, St. Augustine. And he was one of the chief defenders of the faith against it. The Donatism, and I'm probably oversimplifying here and, and butchering truly what the cause of the error and the, the, the real virulence of the, of the heresy is, but it basically said this, the capacity for the priest to conduct the sacraments was contingent upon his own personal holiness, his own life of virtue. And somehow it detached the, the, the effusion of grace, the availability of the grace of those sacraments from the person of Jesus Christ. It became contingent upon, is that man in his priesthood living a life of virtue? And so if he had a priest who walked away from the faith, let's say, but then repented and came back to the faith, he would be forever damaged goods. And any mass he said, any baptism he said, any confession he heard wouldn't be valid. This was a very dangerous heresy because it, it, it basically chopped at the root of all sacraments which operate from the persona Christi, the person of Jesus Christ. 
Our priests put on Jesus. That's why they vest for Mass. They're not just in their own authority confecting the sacraments and bringing the miracle of the Eucharist upon that altar. They're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Little tip, you watch the institution narrative in the Eucharistic prayer. The priest, for the first time, having prayed to the Heavenly Father all the way through the Eucharistic prayer, suddenly begins to speak in the words of Jesus himself. It's a clue. Donatism drives right at the heart of that. And I would suggest, especially given the lacerating, again, Bishop Barron's words, lacerating impact of the sexual abuse crisis, it's done incredible harm to the priest because if you can impair the priesthood writ large, you can then call into question the very salvation which comes from their hands, from their service to the church. It's incredibly dangerous. And I would suggest that that, that enemy of donatism, which erupted 1,500 years ago, is alive and well today. I've talked to some priests. They personally experienced this in their own day-to-day -day encounter in the world. I think about the young men who are, uh, uh, have vocations to priesthood and they're studying for the priesthood. These are young men that right now are running into the burning building. It's a very apt phrase for who they are. The Council of Trent wrote down these words to truly put the nail, if you will, in the, in the donatist coffin. The Council of Trent taught the following, that the divine sacrifice of the Holy Mass is contained and immolated, fancy words for, it's expressed through Jesus, in an unbloody manner, in the same Jesus Christ that had offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. It's the same victim, the same sacrificing priest who offers himself now through the ministry of priests and who once offers himself upon the cross. The priest does not bring about the sacraments through his own authority, it's through the authority of Jesus Christ. So, donatism. And God bless our priests. I want to compare that with Jansenism. This is a second virulent heresy, which again, it broke out in the 17th and 18th centuries, primarily in France, but then it filtered out to Western Europe and then into the New World. Essentially, Jansenism, again, not a theologian, probably butchering the nature of the heresy, but I'll try here. This is my attempt. It placed crushing burdens of perfect contrition on the faithful. Think about the Pharisees, these rule followers, these kind of if you didn't do it right, you check all the boxes according to the rules, the techniques, the attributes of how you, your posture of prayer came together, the very capacity for you, the soul, to receive God's grace was also blocked and impaired. Jansenists, you know, just an example, most of our crucifixes you see in Catholic churches, Jesus' arms outstretched, and, and many have you know, opined that's just his hug, it's his beautiful embrace of the world, his hand nailed to the cross. Jansenists have this extreme, almost like Jesus' hands are nailed to the, the up and down part of the cross, almost to communicate that it's only through Jesus' example, only through his extreme acts of, of, of sacrifice on the cross that we can even get there. The distortion is this. I'll use the personal encounter with Jesus Christ as a way to get there. If you can impair through donatism the nature of the priesthood and therefore call into question through that priest we can receive from Jesus himself, it shatters and brings to, to, to a place of question how we receive what Jesus offers through his priesthood, through his ministerial priesthood. Jansenism does the same thing. It basically says, hey, if you don't do enough spiritual push-ups, your personal encounter with Jesus Christ is also compromised. And what I find, and again, 
this may not land very well, but the distortion today, especially in our driven world, is spiritual perfection, to which Jesus calls and invites us to, has been turned into something called spiritual perfectionism. This relentless pursuit in which the love of God dies, and there's just this, this again, in Kervatis and say, I'm just going to try and sort of spiritual push out my way to heaven. And at, at the end of the day, you kind of put those two things together, donatism, Jansenism, it takes this river of grace and just cuts it off. It just cuts it off. St. Ignatius talks about be aware and then engage. I share these two ideas just in highlight because I think there are elements of donatism at work where people, especially those that are less catechized, those that are, those that are a little more spiritually um, um, barren, they call into question and put the burden of their salvation on priests in a way that's unfair. I think there's also some people who will, will, will get into times of trial and adversity. They'll be discouraged by the circumstances around them and they'll just kind of collapse and cave in on themselves and forget that at the heart of this is this desire, this need to, to, to come to, to Jesus. So, what is the antidote? If we have two adversaries that are manifestations of an ancient enemy who's seeking to cut us off from the life of Christ, how do we respond? How do we turn back to God? If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. I'm going to borrow from St. Francis de Sales, who lived when the Jansenist thing was raging. And he just offered this beautiful, beautiful reflection. He said the following, We grow in holiness more rapidly when we focus on God's love rather than our sins. When we focus on God's love rather than our sins. He saw brooding over our faults and tabulating progress in virtue. This is, again, St. Francis de Sales as cleverly disguised forms of self-absorption. Another way to call self-absorption, collapsing in on the self, in Kervatis and say. They are dangerous distractions from the grace of Christ that is the only sure fix for our flaws. I want to repropose these breakthroughs of grace which draw us back into unity, into alignment, into relationship with Jesus. And just to put some, some, some spin on it relative to the two heresies I touched on, my first story is this. I met Father Derek on a ministry team quite a few years ago now. And this ministry team would travel town to town and place to place. And we'd go into a parish and do a youth retreat. We'd go into a university and do a campus ministry event. We'd go into somebody's home and lead Bible study. I mean, there was a variety of manifestations for this youth ministry or this traveling youth ministry year. Two of the teammates, these beautiful young women who were totally on fire, love for God. And compelling, there were two of them. They were just beautiful souls who together in friendship but also in service of the church just had this infectious joy and enthusiasm, back to joy. They were placed in a host home, or potentially where your accommodations were for the time you're in that town, with a parish. <clears throat> and the parish was this small rural church, and the parish priest was this tired, old, curmudgeon priest. Like, <laughs> there's some priests who've been priests for 40 years, and you can totally tell they've embraced their bride, the church, and it's just like, oh man, they're like just brimming with the Holy Spirit. This was not that. This was a bit more of the crusty, hardened, calloused over, 
you know, God bless him. Who knows why, but it's got to be hard when you're on your own, when you're carrying the flock. It's got to be hard. And within a couple of minutes, let's say 30 minutes of arrival in this host home, these two young ladies, my teammates, instantly diagnosed this guy was just this hard, calloused, overtired guy, this withered oak tree of a priest. And they said, we're just going to lavish love on this guy. We're going to be the most joyful, enthusiastic, infectious, almost taking that page out of Saint Teresa Flower. She spent the most time with the kind of most difficult, honoring sister in the convent, right? They did that for this priest. And over the course of three days, Friday through Sunday, just were the most joyful, compelling, can we help you? What can we do for you? Can we go to the store for you? What do you need from us? God bless you. God bless your priesthood. Like they just, like this guy stepped into the nuclear reactor of light and joy and feminine genius, okay? A breakthrough of grace. Because come Sunday, he's kind of walking them out to the car and he's kind of gruff and, you know, well, thanks for all that, blah, 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 blah. And then he broke. And he wept at the doorstep of his house as these two young ladies were jumping into the van to get going. Because he had never, for quite some time probably, ever been loved on like that. In a beautiful way. In a way that brought Christ. In a way that didn't just kind of charge him up and make him feel better out of the doubt of the day like a good cup of coffee. It, it sort of turned the compass needle of his life back to the source and the summit of our faith. Turn it around. So this is this is this is where uh, I know of a story of a, of a Polish priest who went through incredible trial and difficulty living in Poland. Poland being shattered and smashed between uh, Nazi fascism, right, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and then later uh, under Soviet communism. Those two incredible geopolitical forces just almost like a couple of, of heels under a boot, just tried to crush the Polish people and praise God for their faith, right? And out of this, we have the Slavic son, Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II. But this Polish priest is a son of that tradition. He's truly a, a man whose priesthood was formed and his culture was, was framed by this crucible of, of things that sought, sought to truly destroy the heart of the people and, and kill their faith. He walked into a parish and there was a family that, for 20 years, they've been praying for one of their family members to come back to the faith. That person had walked away from the faith 20 years ago. And they've been praying, and they've been praying, and they've been praying, and they've been praying. And just no movement from this kind of holdout family member who, who hadn't converted. And all of a sudden, this parish priest comes to visit, becomes the pastor. And just through sheer personal holiness and personal influence, got to know this family. Over time, had encounters with this hardened, fallen away uh, person who wasn't practicing their faith. And all the reasons for which this person, this skeptic, was kind of staying away from the faith, in particular was kind of viewing the priesthood through hypocrisy and other things, again, donatism at work. This priest, through his own personal holiness, through his own authority in the person of Jesus Christ, and also in his just simple charity as a, as a, as a minister of God, transformed that family, and that person came back and reentered the faith. A breakthrough of grace. Just want to pause there and just pray. I think everybody in here 
in some category, in some sphere, in some relationship, in some question, in some cross. I would suggest, I would hope, I would expect there's some desire, oh God, would you not provide and open the doors for me of grace. And so Jesus, I commend to you our story and our lives, and I pray on behalf of these faithful souls. And I ask that St. Augustine would enter this room and stand with us from his place in heaven. I pray St. Therese, likewise, would stand with us from her place in heaven. St. Catherine, pray for us. St. Benedict of Nursia and St. Scholastica, your sister, pray with us. I just invite you to close your eyes and just invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I just set aside any qualification, any posture, anything where you feel like you're not ready, where you feel like you're not worthy, anything where you feel like you haven't done enough spiritual push-ups. I pray, Jesus, that you would you would enter this room as you get the room in, in the Gospel of John following the resurrection. You would breathe on us and say, peace be with you. I pray for these people who are hungry to know your heart. And I pray right now you would open up the heart, your heart, Jesus, for a breakthrough of grace. Where there is need of healing, Jesus, by your stripes we are healed. Where there is a need of, of clarity and understanding, Jesus, you are the light of the world and the darkness has not overcome it where there's a need for forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus, receive us as you did the sinful woman and, and say, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Where there is injury because of the church in her fallen humanity, I pray, Jesus, you would put faithful ministers in our path who can restore and repair that relationship. I pray for marriages. I pray for families. I pray for parents and children. I pray for needs and wants. I pray for businesses. I pray for financial need. I pray for emotional need. I pray for those areas where the cross is laid upon us and it is heaviest, Lord Jesus. We come before you and we ask you, Jesus, to meet us where we are at. Jesus, embrace us. Just going to let you sit with that for just a minute. praying, I just want to speak against um, any doubt or fear that you've been given much by God and for somehow through a sense of unworthiness or personal clumsiness or something you haven't done well with it, I just want to set that lie at rest. If you read Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, the sower went out to sow his seed and some fell on the path, some fell among thorns. 
Some fell among the rocks, some fell upon good soil. God blesses your fruitfulness. God blesses your yes to him. God is a generous sower. He doesn't meter out the seed, counting each and every grain. He lavishly pours seed upon the soil of your life. Let's just come back together. What I wanted to offer this morning under this canopy of breakthrough of grace is an invitation. Over the course of this coming year, the Society of Catholic Leaders will meet, and we're going to unpack this. It'll be a theme that restores and reassures, that reestablishes something that's good and noble and holy in all of us, day by day. And if that's compelling, I invite you to come back, join us, whether in this room or through the podcast, which we intend to launch later this year. We live in a darkening hour of history. I think we can all admit to that. And so what's the invitation? What do we do? John of the Cross and Ignatius of Loyola were two Spanish saints who had beautiful ways of looking at this, and they both used the idea of flame. For John of the Cross, he talked about when you put a log in a fire, the log gradually is consumed by the fire such that by the end of that consuming process, the log itself is fire. It's a beautiful glowing ember radiating heat. It's just a beautiful thing to witness and observe. He compared that change in the log to the change in the soul under the grace of God over time. John of the Cross. Ignatius of Loyola joined that with the words, inflamete omnia, inflamete omnia, inflame everyone, inflame all which is to say, go out into that world that is increasingly growing dark and chill and be that flame, be that glowing ember of grace. And don't do it out of your own capacities because you won't be able to. Do it out of Christ's. And to borrow from Joe's example, regular moderation of the Blessed Sacrament, he kicked me in the butt last year and said, when was the last time I took a holy hour? And I was like, I just invite you to consider that. The second one, again, out of the Pontificate of John Paul II, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, there's only one antidote in response to the darkness which, which, which washes over our pleasant time and, and, and era. It is the mercy of Jesus Christ from his pure side, water and blood poured forth, mercy and justice poured forth. We have to claim that on behalf of this world. Let me wrap up. I went to Rome for the first time this year. Praise God. Love Rome. And on the first morning of my first day, of my first church that I went to in Rome on this pilgrimage, I ended up in the Lateran Basilica, which is the Pope's own cathedral church. It's where his cathedra, his seat of authority sits. He teaches from that. It's also a, ch a church that's a basilica converted from what was the palace and garrison and barracks of the general that Constantine defeated in the early 300s. Out of that victory, Constantine made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire under the Edict of Milan. And as a gift to the church, this barracks and this palace was kind of on the outskirts of Rome at the time, now it's in the inner city. He gave that to the church and said, here, here's your first home. Here's your first place we get to worship publicly without fear of reprisal. 
And the church has obviously over the centuries gone through various renovations and facelifts and adornments. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place to pray. Many relics there. But down the main transept of the church on both sides in these alcoves are these huge 12, 13, 14 foot tall statues of the 12 apostles. St. Matthias didn't make it. St. Paul took his place. But the 12 apostles. <laughs> and, uh, and my daughter kind of grabbed me by the shirt uh, uh, cuff and, and, and dragged me over to the statue of St. Simon and said, I gotta get your photo. And I'm standing underneath this guy who has the object of his martyrdom before him and I'm like, wow, this is so beautiful. But I just wanna posit an idea and I'll close with this. I offer this as a gift because it's important to me. What do you do with the secrets of the kingdom? You give them away. In centuries hence, when people look back at this time and chronicle it like they did the time of Catherine of Siena, they chronicle it like Benedict, uh, Benedict of Nursia, they chronicle it like St. Augustine's, I believe there will be another church built somewhere in the world that in the same state where they, they look with gratitude and they look with, with, with admiration at people who, through their yes to Christ, held up the church and, and, and stayed in the boat. Would it not be beautiful for this time there be similar heroes that came up in this time of darkness that could take their places by their decision, not ours. God needs to appoint and anoint. But literally, that there be future saints alive today who would take their place in those alcoves, bearing up the church in that basilica that will be born someday, sometime, some century from now. I aspire for that, but I don't claim. I only aspire for Christ. I only aspire for what the gospel offers, which answers all my deepest questions and my heartfelt desires. I pray this has been a blessing. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Go forward in Clemente Omnia. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. We're a small word-of-mouth movement. Can we ask you to share it with a friend? Please see our show notes and website for discussion questions and other resources. Until next time, may God bless you, keep you, and make His face shine upon you.